Uh, Father, we just uh, thank you for who you are, and Lord, just pray that we be filled with your spirit here, and that, Father, that we would uh, better understand who you are and be able to comprehend how much you love us. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're starting on the Old Testament, and that's a pretty daunting task, actually. Uh, uh, And so I decided we're going to do it from Abraham to Nehemiah. I know that sounds kind of weird, but uh, it kind of made sense to me. And and really, where uh, where I got the idea from was this. Now, this looks real academic here right off the bat. But uh, actually, this comes from a book called 30 Days in Understanding the Bible. And uh, my first encounter with this book was I taught seventh grade Bible for a year. That was quite an experience. But, uh, um, and I actually taught the, that, pretty much that same class back in 2008. Wow, that's a long time ago. It doesn't seem like it was just yesterday. But we went through it in 2008. And this comes right out of that book. And uh, if you're looking for a good book that will just really give you a good understanding of the Bible and how kind of the Bible works, I don't know why that thing does that. But anyway, uh, 30 Days of Understanding the Bible is a good one. And you can get it on Kindle. Uh, They got a new version out now. Or you can get a a paperback. I highly recommend that you get the paperback book because there's a lot of repetition in it. And it, it will really uh, uh, just increase your understanding of the Bible itself. I mean, I just can't begin. I, you know, I took, you know, uh, Old Testament survey at Bible college, and it didn't even come close to what this book here did for me. So it really helps you get a look at the big picture. So in this chart here kind of shows you that the... This is going to be very bad if it keeps doing that. Uh, It's basically showing that the Old Testament is not chronological. So you got to think your block number one. There's the answer is it's not. It's not in chronological order. So if you look at it, if you start over here, you got Genesis, and written at the same time in the same time frame is the Book of Job. And so most people think. And when he started at the beginning of the book, you're going to read all the way through the book, and at the end of the book, it's the end. And generally, if you're reading a novel, that's the way things work, but the, the Bible isn't set up that way. And so the Old Testament, just so you get an idea here, um, you can see Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. It, it's showing you here, these are the main historical books, but if you go Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus kind of overlaps Exodus and Numbers. And Deuteronomy overlaps Numbers and Joshua. And then Ruth and Judges were written at the same time. And then 1 Samuel by himself. 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicle. And then the bulk of the Psalms. Not all the Psalms were written during this time frame, but roughly. And then you hear Proverbs, Ecclesiastic, Song of Solomon were written during the time of Second Chronicles and 1 Kings. So this here is all happened chronologically together. And then Second Kings, you come to Second Kings and Kings, and wow, all these prophets are writing during Second Kings because this is right before uh, Israel goes into uh, captivity in Babylon. And so notice there's nothing here on the main line of Israel because they've been all dispersed. And so Ezekiel and Daniel, though, are writing during this period. And, you know, of course, we know Dan- Daniel was in Babylon during this time. 
And then you can see when they come out of captivity, you know, Ezra goes back first and then Nehemiah. And then during Ezra, Haggai and Zechariah are writing. And then Malachi is writing here. Okay? So so we're going to basically... as far as the, you know, like the history of Israel is kind of, kind of where we're going at it. That sounds so dry though. So, uh, uh, but, so basically it all started with, uh, Abraham back here in Genesis. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through these books. Now we may not go through every single chapter. Uh, it, it just depends on the chapter. Some of the chapters, eh, they're real, uh, they're, it could be tedious, tedious. So I may skip some chapters. I'm thinking seriously about skipping Exodus altogether because just finishing Exodus right now on Sunday. So probably doesn't make sense, make much sense to go do that again right now. So that for tonight, we're going to start with uh, uh, Abraham. And, oh, yeah, we're not ready for that yet. So, yeah. So that's where I get the idea. Genesis I mean, Abraham to Nehemiah, because Abraham starts at around chapter 11 of Genesis, okay? So uh, if you got a Bible, we're going to open up to chapter 11. And just to give you some idea, what's happening prior to chapter 11, it's, this is right after the flood. Uh, chapter 10 is one of those books that's full of genealogies. So we're going to get into some genealogy stuff today, but all these lists that are in there. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But uh, so uh, we're going to skip over all the lists. Uh, that It's uh, the table of nations. It tells where everybody went after the flood. So it's kind of cool, but maybe not so much. So um, uh, even in chapter 11, the events aren't exactly in chronological order. But uh, there's, after I've been studying this for a week or so, there's kind of a method to the madness, and we'll talk about it. So starting at verse 1, it says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. So... um, I guess one of the first things that for understanding the Bible is that you, um, when you read it, the first rule, I guess, as far as I know, is that you have to understand what the original writer meant to the original recipients. And so when he says, he documents the fact that he says, come, let it, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And he says they use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Well, the, the idea of brick, Instead of stone, like uh, the kind of represents the idea that you know man would, is going to build something and eventually it's going to fall apart. Where the stuff from God is made from stone and it's permanent, it's going to last. And uh, they used tar for mortar, which is interesting because in that area of the world, it's similar to Santa Barbara. I don't know if anybody's ever been up to Santa Barbara on the beach, but you'll just be walking down the beach and. Uh, Oil is oozing out of the ocean floor, and it washes up on the beach, and it's real thick and gooey. And if you step in it, you don't want to step in it. It's pretty nasty. But so that's what was happening over in uh, this area of the world, because actually we're talking about uh, modern-day Iraq. There's a lot of oil over there, so much oil that is literally seeping out of the ground. So they used that 
to create the mortar that they would stick the bricks together to build this tower. So they're actually using it to build a tower of Babel. And he says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower, the tower of Babel, that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And then the next phrase is pretty key because he says, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And uh, it's interesting that that phrase is really key because uh, uh, in number two, uh, the Tower of Babel was in direct rebellion against God. I mean, that's what it was. Because when, when Noah got off the ark after the flood, uh, uh, God commanded Noah, be fruitful and increase the number and fill the earth. So God wanted him to go ahead and multiply and go out and fill the earth, go to the whole earth. So what they had done was they had all kind of migrated to this uh, central area uh, of Iraq, uh, what we would call modern-day Iraq right now, and near the city what we now call Babylon. Just south of there is where the, the Tower of Babel was built. So let's see what happens next in verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if there's one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because there, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So in verse 8, uh, God repeats himself here. Um, at the beginning, he says, So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. And at the end of the, that uh, verse, he says, or verse Yeah, at the end of verse 9, he says, The Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So I think there's kind of some truth there that when God tells you that you should be doing something, and then you probably should be doing it because he repeats himself here. Hey, I told first he tells them to do it. They don't do it. And then he goes in and tells us, so I basically scattered them over the whole earth because I told him to do that in the first place. And then he tells us again. So I think it's there uh, for guys like me, to be honest with you. So this idea of uh, the Tower of Babel, that's where the the new modern cities built near there was Babylon. And so the, uh, the first organized rebellion against God is at Babel or Babylon. And then when you go to uh, the book of Revelation, the final rebellion against God is chronicled in Revelation 17 and 18, referring to Babylon again. So it's kind of like we started off there and, now, and we're actually going to finish up there. So <clears throat> uh, the next thing we're going to read is um, uh, the from Shem to Abraham. Uh, okay, and this is uh, this is the account of Shem's family line. Okay, remember we're basically we're talking about what happened pretty much right after uh, the flood of Noah. So Noah had three sons. Uh, 
uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Okay, and so this is going to give us the the uh, genealogy or the list of people that are when we're in Shem's line. And there's a reason for that because he wanted to chronicle the line from Shem or from basically from Noah out to Abraham, okay? Because this is where Abraham comes in because God's got this plan and so he's setting his plan in motion. So in verse 10, it says, this is the count of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, I think it's interesting and he marks, he's setting some time up here and and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. He says, two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of uh, Arphaxad. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. He makes a point of saying he had other sons and daughters. And that's a, you're going to see there's a little pattern that develops here. <clears throat> and uh, then Arphaxad had... Had lived, and when Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And he became the, after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived uh, 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, this is the reason that we're reading this here, right here. It's this list is right in the middle of it. It's talking about this guy, uh, Eber, and he had a son named Peleg. Well, back in... Genesis 10, the chapter that we didn't read because it's just full of genealogies. I mean, the whole thing is genealogies of of all three of the sons, and it's much more comprehensive than the one we're reading here. But it includes all three of them. And in that one here, in Genesis 10, 25, I'll just read you the verse. It says, two sons were born of Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided, his brother was named uh, Joktan, <clears throat> okay? One was named Peleg because his time, in his time, the earth was divided. So this is the time of the Tower of Babel, okay? It's kind of interesting because if you go back and you add up the years, it's about 100 years that the Tower of Babel is in operation during, during uh, Peleg's uh, lifetime. You would think, all right, there had just been this worldwide flood. God had just did this big judgment, and so he had the total witness of Noah and his sons and everything. But within 100 years, people are already disregarding God and building this temple and trying to defy what God had told them to do. So then it goes on. It says, when Peleg lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru, and after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Sirig. And after he became the father of Sirig, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. So, uh, and then he finally ends up at, in verse 26, 
After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abraham, or Abram, Nahor, and uh, Haran. Okay, this is kind of an interesting list because it not only includes the genealogy, but it also includes the time, okay? And um, at certain points in the Bible when God has these lists and he has these people listed and he has the amount of time involved, what that does is it allows us to actually walk back in time. So he's creating this the, the list of names, but there's uh, years that go along with it. And uh, sometimes it's not actually, there may be a name skipped here and there, but it gives us a good general idea of how, how far back in time all this stuff actually happened. So why is that important to us now? Well, we know that at the Tower of Babel, the guys were up there, they're working on the tower, and, you know, they're doing their thing. And, you know, I'm working along and I'm speaking in whatever the language was. And, and all of a sudden, Dennis starts speaking to me in French. And I'm like, what? You know, I mean, we're talking uh, pretty crazy making. And so there was uh, roughly, they figure, about at least 70, maybe up to 100 different languages that were created just like that. Okay? And, and the, the interesting part of this is that when you look at uh, the origin of language, if you look that up, right, there's a gazillion different uh, theories on it and whatever. But one thing they all have in common is, is that at some certain point in time, language disappeared out of nowhere. They have no idea how that happened. They just know that at this point, uh, language happened. And so I remember I looked into this back in 2008. We're kind of touching on this sort of thing back then. And back then there was a few different theories, and I, so I thought, well, I'll look it up again. And I looked it up again. It's just I exploded thousands of different uh, ideas about language. But the, what I, the, the one that looks the best to me, actually, is the fact that, that uh, back in 2008, there was uh, many uh, secular, non-religious uh, people that study languages that had went back in time to, you know, X amount of years. And what that did is that corresponded exactly at the time of the Tower of Babel. So uh, there's a lot of things we can't explain. We don't know for sure. But uh, it's kind of interesting when you get science and the Bible kind of lining up. So uh, you guys got that genealogy there. I want to just go through that real quick. Oh, here it is. Uh, so you can see here, it starts out with Shem. It goes through all those people that I read. But this is actually a cast of characters because uh, right over here, can you guys see the red dot? Right here, this is Terah, right? And this is uh, Abraham and Sarai. Her name gets changed to Sarah later on. These two here get married, okay? And then you come down here, and you can see Isaac. Isaac comes off of here. And uh, if you look over here, from Nahor's line of Bethuel, you see Rebecca. And as we read through the story, these two here are going to get married. Okay, and then Isaac, he uh, gives birth to Esau and Jacob. There's two unique stories around these two guys here too, but, but just to, you know, connect the dots, uh, these two here 
well, actually, these three here end up getting married. And then, you know, Jacob, and then you have the, the tribes of Israel. So, uh, so you can see it completely documents the line of Shem. Okay, so if you put the whole thing together, there would be Ham would be here, Shem would be here, and Japheth would be over here. If you had that, what you'd have is Genesis chapter 10, where it's going to list all these people. So it's kind of the cast of characters for what we're going to be studying here uh, for uh, probably the next couple of months or so. So, um, so in this whole thing, you notice that I, I just somehow I always refer to this guy as Abraham because God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And so if I'm reading through, I mean, I'll look at this, I'll see Abram, I'll think Abram, but Abraham will come out of my mouth. So if that happens, just cut me some slack, okay? Uh, Same way with uh, Sarah, because they both get their names changed, uh, and God changes their names. And so Abram means uh, uh, exalted or noble father. Uh, uh, Sarai means princess, okay? And they get their names changed to Abraham, gets changed to uh, father of many, which is fitting, and Sarah to mother of nations, okay? So um, uh, I guess, and this happens after their relationship with God develops, right, is when they get their names changed. And uh, and I guess for... uh, um, I guess for all of us, I know for me for sure that that when you enter into a relationship with God and then your life changes also and uh, and i I know it does, and I can say one hundred percent that I know that it does because the Bible says that it does in second uh, corinthians five seventeen it says therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You ever think about that? I mean, in terms, I think we've got probably a room full of believers here, right? All things have become new, and I think sometimes we forget about that. And so I have a question. It's kind of a deep question. Um, um, what do you plan to accomplish before you die. What do you plan to accomplish before you die? What do you plan to accomplish before you die? Kind of a deep thought, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I know that God has something for you. I think some of us, maybe something came to mind right away. Maybe others not. Um, You know, I don't know. But I know that God has a plan. And so when you enter into this relationship with God, you know, 100%, and then I think you're going to have the answer to that question. And it's going to be different for everyone. I know that. But, and I think then at that point, you're the whole focal point of your life becomes different because, you know, all things that become new, right? All things that become new. 
And we know that God has something for you because in Ephesians it says we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, I think Abram had some idea of what he was doing, but we're going to read the story. Abraham's kind of a, an interesting story because... Uh, uh, he, I don't think he was like a holier-than-thou guy. I don't think that at all. So in number three, it says, my relationship with God. Um, and then you just have to fill that. I don't know the answer to that question for you. But you probably ought to think about it and you know write something in there. Okay? So we got these lists. He's got these lists, you know, um, you know, and like I keep talking about chapter 10, chapter 10 has two more of these. And actually this one here isn't complete. Uh, this has been kind of pared down to be used in chapter 11, because what happens is God starts out with this table of nations and it's like this, it's huge, right? It includes everybody from Ham, Shem and Japheth. It's got all of them. They're all in there. Okay, but the line that he's concerned with is this one here that's going to eventually go to Christ. So in, when he gets to 11, he narrows it down, starts narrowing it down, so we're dealing with the line of Shem. Okay, but nevertheless, um, uh, he had all those people in there. All the people are in there in chapter 10. We didn't read it. Be like, well, boy, people be snoozing out because just more and more repetition. But the thing of it is, is that the reason it's in there, I'm convinced, and, there, and it's, you see this throughout the Bible, is that, that God cares about people, all right? The individual list, okay? If, if your name or my name or somebody that we knew was in one of those lists, you can bet we'd be looking through there, right? It's kind of like when they... Take a group picture. What are you looking for when you're looking at a group picture? Huh? You're looking for a picture? Where am I? No, right? No, no, you're looking for you. You get what I'm saying. It's the same idea. So when we read through these lists of really hard-pronounced names, it's like, what? You know, it's kind of, oh, this is boring. I can't deal with it. But from God's perspective, it's very important because God cares about everybody, you know, for God so loved the world. So that list to God, and it doesn't really matter if you believe in God or not, because if you look at the genealogies in 10, a lot of those people, even some of the people on this list here, end up becoming enemies of God. It doesn't matter, though. He still wants their names in there because he cares about everybody. So it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, we think about the lists are kind of boring, but from God's perspective, um, uh, uh, you know, we're all unique. You know, there's 7 billion people, over 7 billion people on the earth right now. And uh, nobody has the same iris. Nobody has the same fingerprint. And then when you get down to the whole DNA thing, and then that's another whole level of uniqueness. I mean, so, you know, God knows the number of hairs on our head. So God is looking at everyone as a unique individual. So, so God, God cares about people, okay? That's why he keeps the list. He cares about all people. That's number four. 
Okay, the most important list. There's the most important list. You guys know that, right? The most important list is the book of life. Yeah, the book of life. Um, uh, the book of life in Revelation, it talks about it. And uh, I, I got it in your outline. I think you can see all those verses. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read 21. 27, Revelation 21, 27. And it says in that verse, nothing impure will ever enter it. And he's talking about heaven now. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay. So that's a pretty important list. I think if you want to open that list up, you definitely want to find your name in that list. Um, um, on in Philippians chapter four, Paul actually talks about the book of life, and it's Paul puts it in the practical realm. Let me read you the verses here. Uh, Philippians four two and three. It says, "I plead with Erodia, and I plead with Synecdoche. I apologize for that. Uh, to become this uh, of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, again, I ask you, my true companion." Help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So in the realm of church stuff, you know, you may have this or that and problems here and there or whatever, but Paul really takes it down to the nitty-gritty, to where the rubber meets the road is, you know what? We're all co-workers in Christ, and... Uh, our names are all in the book of life, so it's kind of nice. So it has some practical application beyond just uh, turn or burn. And so in Genesis, back in Genesis 11, starting at verse 27, it says, The account of T- uh, Terah's uh, family line. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. So we're talking about, it's easy to read through this and kind of think about it. If you think about those, the family, right? So there's Terah. He's got his three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran dies. I mean, that's kind of a tra- tragedy in that family. And before Haran died, he's got a son named Lot. And so um, we're going to see how the family kind of comes together. And uh, Abraham actually kind of adopts Lot, and they kind of go on this journey together. And so it says, Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ishkah. Now, Sarah, Sarai was childless because she was not able to see, conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out for Ur of the Chaldees to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. So just to kind of get an idea where we're at. Uh, I hate reading about places I have no idea what they're talking about. 
Lucky. <clears throat> okay, so this is Google Maps here. So you kind of get an idea. It's on the other side of the world. And uh, right in this area here. I get all misty-eyed when I see here because I've been all these places in Japan and South Korea, Philippines. Oh, well, not a family slideshow. So anyway, so we're going to zoom in on this area here. And you can see here, uh, this is, right here is Ur, and that's where they started out from. And so there's some question, was it here or was it here? I don't know if it really matters or not. But anyway, uh, you can see the route that they took. You know, the Tower of Babel would be right in here. And then we come up here, and they settled in Haran. Okay, the idea from for Tira was to go down in here into Canaan. So you know that this whole area here doesn't show it as Canaan, but Canaan is actually what we would now call Israel. Canaan actually was the land that God gave to the Israelites. And so Canaan was right here. I, I don't know. Uh, I never realized it, but this was actually... Long, long ago, when I was learning world history, there was an empire called the Phoenicians, and they lived right along here in the Fertile Crescent. And um, that was the Canaanites. Anybody hear of the Phoenicians before? Yeah, same people. Who would know that? I just found that out. So anyway, yeah. So this is the route that they took from Ur to Haran. And so they hung out in Haran, yeah, they didn't go into to, uh, Canaan, and Tira died, and then we moved to chapter 12. So in chapter 12, it starts off with, uh, The Lord uh, had said to Abram, Go forth from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And so uh, it's kind of interesting because he says he... The Lord had said to Abram, so I'm not exactly sure if that was part of them leaving with Terah. You know, and at the end there it talks about Terah and the family moving and eventually planning on going to Canaan, but they stop in Haran. I'm not exactly sure if that's what happened there. But if you follow along here, it says, though, uh, and this is, uh, he says, uh, and I will make you a great nation. Okay? So... These are some promises that God has made to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. Did that happen? Yes, that happened. I will bless you. Okay, and we're going to see as we go through the book of Genesis that God blesses Abraham big time. He says, I will make you great. I will make your name great. And we're talking about Abraham thousands of years later, right? So he followed through on that. And you will be a blessing. And he was a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And we're going to see coming up, both of those came true. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And that's true because through Abraham's line came Jesus. And the whole world could be saved through Jesus. So verse uh, number six, uh, God keeps his promises. He does. So Joshua, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. 
at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua's kind of given his big speech to uh, the Israelites. And, um, and so in verses 1 through 5, he kind of reveals some stuff about uh, uh, Abraham. It says in verse 1, Then Joshua assembled, this is Joshua 24, it says, Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Okay? So he's a prophet. He's speaking for God right now. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father, Abraham, from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him uh, throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I signed the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Okay. The key phrase there is at the end of verse uh, 2, and worshipped other gods. And so um, Abraham was actually a non-believer, which is kind of interesting because if you think about it, by the time Abraham comes onto the scene, it's about 300 years after the flood, if if you add up the years that are used in the genealogy, which is, from my perspective, I'm trying to think about this. You know, God could have chosen anybody. I mean, he could have chose, you know, the most staunch believer to, you know, fill this role that Abraham filled, but he chose Abraham, which is a guy that was just off in the wild here, worshiping probably the moon god or something. No, seriously, that's what they were worshiping in that area at that time, is the moon god. And so it just blows my mind that God would take Abraham, a non-believer, and just basically be the guy to start the whole thing in motion that would you know, turn the whole world upside down. Um, but, you know, I think God doesn't always, uh, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first kind of thing. But uh, So it's kind of an interesting thing that, you know, people that think that, you know, well, you know, God could never do anything with me. I mean, if you look at throughout the Bible, you look at Paul, he was going around persecuting Christians. He takes Abraham, a non-believer, and and uh, turns him into this great man of faith. So uh, in verse uh, 4, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Uh, Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So he had another 100 years left. Abraham lived to be 175. And I'd say they were 100 productive years. Uh, He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, Remember Lot, his, his brother that died, he takes his son with him, right? All the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Iran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So um, so he goes to Canaan. Uh, in Hebrews, it, the Hebrews is probably one of the best commentaries on Genesis, uh, Hebrews 11, it talks a little about Abraham. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. It actually talks about Sarah, too. If you want to go there, read Hebrews 11. It's a pretty good read. This is in verse uh, 11, verse 8. It says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go a place uh, he would later receive as in his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. 
By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So um, so he paints a pretty good picture of, of uh, Abraham here. And if you really think about it, um, even in our own lives, we're all kind of looking for something. You know what I mean? There's always something out there. And I remember as a, as a young man, I would look, you know, I would look to this, I'd look to that for fulfillment. And it took me a while to figure out that, uh, you know, everything comes up empty except for God, you know, because you strive for this and then you get it and then it's like, oh. So then you strive for that and then you get it and then it's, oh. But when you focus on God, it's the only thing that really is gives you something that's fulfilling. You know what I mean? Because God wants to have that relationship with you. So so in verse 6, it says, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah in Shechem. At, the, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. So I'm thinking, so when Abraham gets to Canaan, there's all these Canaanites are there, right? And the Canaanites were like brutal, nasty people. And so he's made this trek. He did what God told him to do, and he gets there, and he's looking around, and there's a whole bunch of mean, nasty guys there. And God says, yeah, I'm giving this to your descendants. Oh. (laughs) But... Abraham was an altar kind of building guy. So it says here that uh, so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So this idea of an altar, I kind of hinted on it a little bit about when we're talking about taking a Bible and marking that Bible up and, you know, you learn something new about the Lord or whatever, you underline it and then you can come back later and you can find it again. And it's like, oh, yeah, I remember. I remember what was going on in my life that made me underline this you go back and you can revisit things, you know, because I think uh, what, what uh, for me, uh, when things start going bad, uh, what I'll do is I'll try to look back and say, well, when things were going good, what was I doing, you know, because I want to go do that again so that the bad things go away. So what, uh, what this idea of Abraham, and he's going around, and we're going to see, he builds a few of these altars. It, to Abraham, I'm not sure exactly what it, but I, from what I've read, it most likely would have been just a big pile of rocks. Okay, pile this big pile of rocks up. So he piles these rocks up, you know, and they say, oh, God did some great stuff here. And then they go off and they got sheep and they're nomadic herders and they're going around and around. And then sooner or later, they come by this spot again. And they go, oh, yeah, I remember what God did here, right? So he built these altars to help him remember. God wants us to remember the good stuff. So you can kind of build your little altars in the Bible where you mark stuff up, okay? So the next one, he says, uh, uh, from there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent uh, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There, he built an altar, okay, to the Lord, and he called on the name of the Lord, then Abram sent out, sent out, set out, and continued toward Negev. 
Negev is just another word for south. So if you remember that map, that map he went up and he came down and he went south. So he's going south. It would be like maybe where Gaza Strip is today. Um, uh, it's interesting, though, that <laughs> if you uh, but the Bible software is great because you can, you can click on a word and you can see what that word in the original language was. And, and I think we talked about this home fellowship maybe a couple of years ago that um, Bethel means the house of God. So he pitched his tent with Bethel, the house of God, on the west, and Ai, a heap of ruins, on the east. You know, and isn't that kind of a, a neat picture? Because as you're going on the road to life, you have the house of God here, and then you have the alternative, which is usually ends up in a heap of ruins. So uh, it's kind of an interesting thought. In verse 10, now there was famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, and the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me but let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Kind of sketchy, huh? Actually, it was one of those half-truths, you know, and we're going to jump ahead. It says, uh, because he actually does this again uh, later on. And he gives this reason. He says, besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not of my mother. And she became my wife. Okay. So Sarah was actually his half-sister. So I don't know. It still doesn't sound right. You know what I mean? So let's read on in the story. It says, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. They treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. So I guess kind of in Abraham's defense, in those days, if, uh, you know, uh, a, a woman that had a brother, the brother was kind of like a protector uh, for uh, that woman in a situation like this. So it was kind of a way where he'd be close to her and kind of look over and make sure that nobody actually uh, took advantage of her. But uh, still, you know, he's, I don't know. Uh, I remember back a long time ago, the kids were involved in a in these uh, kids kids club Christian theater in the summertime, and I remember they had this little song that they would sing, and uh, and the chorus of it I can't sing, but the the words were uh, stretching the truth is telling a lie, you know. So I think uh, Abraham was guilty of that here, but it seems like he's actually thriving under false pretenses based on um, what has happened here, because he acquired sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants. And camels, so he's prospering under this. In verse 17, but the Lord inflicted uh, serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Abram's wife Sarai. So God intervenes in this thing here. You know, God's got this plan for uh, Abraham, and He intervenes. So Pharaoh, verse 18, Pharaoh summons Abram. What have you done to me? He said. 
Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. So apparently in this, uh, in the culture of Egypt at that point in time, uh, adultery was, you know, frowned. It was not a good thing. It wasn't, it wasn't like it is today. So, uh, so uh, the Pharaoh was kind of outraged, but because God had made these promises to Abraham, uh, this is what Pharaoh says. Now, then here's your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him away with his wife and everything he had. So despite the fact that Abram lied and you know did what he did, he actually went into Egypt and, you know, actually a good state. We know he already had, when he left uh, Haran, he had a bunch of servants and a lot of livestock, people working for him. He goes into Egypt and actually increases all that and comes out uh, looking good. So um, I think God had Abraham's back despite of Abraham. And so the last one is uh, God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for uh, the life of Abraham. And we can see uh, the things that he did and didn't do. And, and Lord, how that you interact with him. And, Lord, you had us back. And, um, Father, we just uh, pray that as we go through the rest of this book that we'll be able to uh, really comprehend uh, how much you cared about Abraham and, and all of us, actually. And, uh to see that you're a loving, uh, patient God. Father, I just uh, pray that uh, we'd all be able to remember this stuff and understand who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.